You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Good morning. My name is Scott. I'm a church planning resident here at Redeeming Grace Church. And uh, we just began a series, as Justin mentioned, through the book of Job. <clears throat> Quite a sober topic. Uh, problem of suffering, problem of evil, and things like that. So please bow your heads and pray with me as we prepare our hearts to receive the word this morning and, uh, and consider these things before us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God will last forever. And we know that your word is true food, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So feed us now, Lord. Feed us through your word. Nourish our bodies, nourish our souls with the truths of scripture about who you are, who we are, what you've done for us through Christ, so that we can persevere and endure to the end and see you face to face. I ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. So we're going to be in Job today, so if you have a Bible, you have a Bible on your phone, there's Bibles under the seats near you, and you want to turn to Job, uh, just get to Job chapter 1, that'll be fine, I'll get you further on from there. As you turn to Job chapter 1, I just want to bring some things to mind as what's happened so far, because that'll be kind of important for today. Just by way of reminder, Josh walked us through the first two chapters last week, and this is the kind of a narrative arc that's transpired so far. Uh, Job is this totally righteous, blameless, upright guy. He's really wealthy, really influential. He has seven sons, three daughters, uh, thousands and thousands of animals in his flocks and herds and things like that. And there's effectively a showdown across two different episodes, one in chapter one, one in chapter two, between God and Satan. And Satan's criticizing God, saying, the only reason Job really loves you and worships you is because you've given him all this stuff and you've protected him from suffering. And if you were to take all of that away, if you were to pull the rug out from underneath him, so to speak, he would curse you to your face. And so God gives Satan permission to test him. Job is afflicted uh, first in chapter one by all of his external things being taken away, his animals slaughtered, his um, servants destroyed, his children all die when a house collapses on them. And then in, in chapter two, he himself is afflicted physically uh, with these disgusting boils all over his, his skin. And he sits down on a dung heap to scrape the oozing pus off of his skin with a broken piece of pottery. So that's where we, that's where we left off yesterday. And a couple things, one thing I want to remind us of here is that you and me, the readers, know what's been going on in the courtroom of God, in the throne room of God in heaven. Job does not. Job has no idea where this came from or what's going on. So there's a little dramatic irony here that you and I as the readers have as well, and that'll, that'll kind of play out here throughout the rest of the sermon. So just keep that in mind, that Job has no idea what's been going on. As far as he's concerned, this is all just totally out of left field. And so I want to point us to Job chapter 3 now. Sorry, Job chapter 2. We're going to do the end of Job chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Pause, talk about those. And then we'll move on and spend the bulk of our time in chapter 3. So read Job chapter 2, verse 11 to 13 with me now. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. 
And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. So we have here three friends of Job's who apparently are from different regions, different areas around this region, who have all heard of what's happened. They've heard of what's transpired. They've received the news. And, uh, and they hear, do all the right things. Instead of simply sending a note, sending a, a little a card, hey, thinking about you, they themselves personally come to visit him, to bring their presence and their friendship to Job, to comfort him in the midst of this, this agony of his soul that he's enduring right now, right? So we have a real good example here of how we can, we can learn from Job's friends in this instance, uh, how we can ourselves comfort those around us. So all, this is important to all of us because we all bear this ministry of, of ministering to one another when uh, we're sorrowful, mourning with those who mourn, weeping with those who weep. So pay attention here. Here's, first of all, they come. They come from afar to share their presence with Job, right? I heard a pastor before, my last pastor said, always go to the funeral, right? We could talk about the, ho- the, uh, the hospital room. We could talk about the grieving family at home, uh, the person who's just received terrible news or a diagnosis or something like that. Something else is going on in their life or with their family across the globe or something like that. There's a really beautiful and just simple ministry of presence of letting that person know that you're there and that you're standing with them and that you're willing to go through the suffering with them. Notice then in, in verse 11 at the end that they came to show him sympathy and comfort. Right, they're there to really minister to him, to see what he needs, to sympathize with him. They do this physically by tearing their robes, putting dust on their heads, sitting down in the dirt and crying with him. These, they're doing all the right things. And then furthermore, this is where we tend to get tripped up. No one said a word to him for or because his sorrow was very great. Oftentimes, we're, we feel like we've got to say something when we come across, across somebody who's grieving, who's in agony, who's received terrible news or a terrible diagnosis or just lost a loved one. And there's this kind of internal pressure. I know I felt it before to, to just say something comforting, something that's going to encourage them. But oftentimes here, we, put our, we put our, kind of put our foot mouth in our mouth. Joseph Carroll says, when a man is resolved to mourn, let him mourn. Your advice may anger him, but it will not help him. Let sorrow have its way a while, and that will make way for comfort. Sometimes the best thing we can do when people are mourning is to just simply sit with them in silence. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to feel that pressure uh, to, to try to conjure up something that's going to lift their spirits. Listen, if, somebody is, if someone's suffering, suffering like Job is here, there's very little you're going to be able to say in that moment to lift their spirits. Let them sit in their sorrow, and you enter into that sorrow with them. We often try and say things like, I understand how you feel. And maybe you have had a similar experience of suffering, but ultimately your experience is different than theirs, and the way you experienced it is different than theirs. And so it's unfair, it's almost offensive to say, I I know how you're feeling. The reality is like none of us know how someone else is feeling when they're grieving, grieving like Job is. Or we say things like, at least or it could be worse, or it's not as bad as, or look on the bright side, right? Trying to find the silver lining in the situation. All those things might be true. There might be a silver lining, but it's just not an appropriate time 
in the midst, right, the shock and awe of that, of that suffering that that person's going through to kind of point those things out. There may come a time later to point out how this situation is actually, God maybe is using it for good, but in the middle of their suffering is not the right time to kind of bring those things up. Or finally, here we're getting a little closer to maybe trying to be helpful, is trying to point out maybe the, the purpose we see in it, saying God has a purpose in this. God is going to use this for good. And that's absolutely true. But it's just not helpful in the midst of somebody's suffering. It's not helpful to correct someone's theology while they're suffering. That's the mistake Job's friends are going to start making in chapter 4, actually. So they start off really, really good in terms of trying to comfort Job and being true friends to him. But it's the moment they open their mouths to try and explain what's going on or correct Job's theology that they go astray and start to kind of act as traitors towards him and they don't really minister to him well. So before we move on to chapter 3, I just wanted to point out here that Job's friends are truly being friends in this. We have a model that we can follow. If any of us are suffering in this way, don't feel a pressure to say anything to somebody who's grieving. Just be willing to be present and sit with them. You just simply say, I'm so sorry. I'm praying for you. Is there anything I can do for you while you grieve? Just offering care, help, presence, being available. There's very little you're going to say to move them out of that. Let them go through that season of mourning and go through it with them. In Job chapters five, chapter 5, verses 6 to 7, if you just glance across the page, you can probably see it. There's this kind of famous line here. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And so I just want all of us to realize here, some of us may be in a similar situation as Job right now, or we've gone through something like that. But if you haven't, especially kids, like wake up and realize you were born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. And so there's something here for all of us today. All of us either have, are, are going to go through some degree of suffering. It might not be as terrible as Job's was. It might not all come crashing down on our heads in a single day like Job's did. It might not strip absolutely everything from us. But whether it's some sort of physical condition that we have to suffer through and bear with, whether it's tremendous loss of a relationship, loss of resources, loss of status, we are all destined for trouble in this life. Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble. And so, as we read this, we might, we might be on cloud nine right now, but just realize it's coming. Suffering is one of the most fundamental facts of our existence, and so many of us have already gone through periods of tremendous suffering, but for those of you who haven't, this, this very well could be you in any, season of, in any season of your life. It's very unlikely that you'll escape suffering like Job is about to express here in chapter three. So I want you to kind of put yourself in his shoes, whether you want to recollect on something that's happened, that's maybe comparable to Job, or you want to imagine your worst day possible. I know for me, it would be if something terrible happened to my kids or my wife, that what we're about to read in Job chapter 3 is almost certainly exactly where I would be. All right? So I'm going to read the whole chapter. It breaks nicely into three chunks, and then I'm going to walk us through each chunk in a little more detail. Read Job chapter 3 with me. So this is after seven days. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. 
Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth, who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free, slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it comes not? And dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but troubles come. I think the first thing we should notice here, which might be easy to miss, we're separated from chapters 1 and 2 by a week, is how different the Job of chapter 3 is from the Job of chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2, he's kind of this stoic face in the midst of suffering. He refuses to curse God. He says in chapters 1, after losing all of his possessions and his own children dying, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then in chapter 2, after himself being physically affected with his skin disease, his wife tells him, do you still hold on to your integrity? Just curse God and die. And he says, shall we not receive evil from the Lord as well as good? But here, he is cursing. He's cursing the day of his birth. So what is going on? Why such a dramatic turnaround? Well, keep in mind that there's probably been at least a month, by my reckoning, of time that's passed. First of all, we don't know how much time has passed between chapters 1 and 2, the first and second episodes. And then he has these friends from across the region who would have, it would have taken time for news to travel to him, time for them to travel back. And so some time has passed from the immediate shock, the immediate cut and wounding of the disasters, and where we are now. And I think John Piper explains this really, really well with this quote. He says, Women have been known to lift automobiles off their pinned husbands after an accident, and then later collapse in shock of what's happened. There's a spiritual counterpart to the physical phenomenon. In the stunned moment of tragedy, many a Christian have been given the grace to sustain the burden with a genuine word of faith. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But then later, under the relentless sequence of empty rooms and chairs and arms, the Christian collapses in sobs of baffled dismay. Soldiers have been known to get a leg blown off by a landmine and run on the raw stump back to safety, but then cry like a baby at the pain of surgery and healing. It's one thing to bear a sudden tragedy. It's quite another to suffer its pain for weeks and months and even years afterwards. And so here, Job is finally starting to unravel. It's set in what's happened to him. The disbelief, the shock has worn off. And now he realizes 
just how depressing his life is as everything's been stripped from him. If you look here, the chapter breaks up into three sections pretty nicely. First, verses 3 to 10, then verses 11 to 19, and then verses 20 to 26. In verses 3 to 10, he curses the day of his birth. He says in verse 3, Let the day perish on which I was born in the night that said, A man is conceived. He's thinking, it would have been better if I just never would have been conceived or never would have been born at all because I, n- I never would have seen this trouble. Which is a very shocking thing because in the Hebrew Scriptures, life is a very precious gift from God, especially in the ancient world where uh, mortality rates are so high. Many, 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 many infants uh, don't even you know, make it to, uh, to birth. And then those who do, many, many, many won't make it to age five. And then even more won't make it to adulthood. And the average life expectancy might be something like 30 or 40 at the most. Uh, This is a time where many, many people die. And the Hebrew Scriptures always, always hold up life as this incredible gift from God that that belongs to him alone. And so Job doesn't curse God, but he does curse the day that he was conceived or that he was born. Look at verse 4. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. In Genesis 1, God says, let there be light. In Job 3, Job says, no, let there be darkness. He's, he's almost calling this cosmic deconstruction language on this day of his birth that, like, I wish we could undo that day, in a sense. That, like, the great cosmic powers that hold up the universe and cause the day and night cycle to come, that all that would just come crashing back down in chaos and darken the day that I was born. Verses 5, 6, he's saying the same thing. Verses, verse 8, he says, let those who curse... It cur- let those curse it who curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. These would be probably sorcerers or witches, people who actually curse different objects in the world. He's asking them to call on Leviathan, which we're going to find out is this great chaotic, mythologic sea creature, dragon, beast thing that is the epitome of death and darkness and chaos and the watery depths. He's basically saying, like, let Leviathan come up and swallow that day whole that just it would descend back into nothingness, that that day had never existed. Then if you look at verses 11 to 19, he says, okay, maybe if, if I hadn't have gotten that, God, if, if, if you would have just caused me never to have been born, that at least I could have been miscarried or stillborn or just died shortly after birth. Look at verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb, and expire? Or why did the knees receive me? Or why the breast that I should nurse? He's wishing at least I could have just come out dead. Or maybe after being born, my, my mother would have just refused to nurse me and just discarded me and left me to starve to death. Because then I would have had rest. That's really the, the, a key theme in this passage here, between trouble and rest. He is so afflicted with psychological and physical torment and misery that his own death would be preferable to his existence right now. See, the gift of life that I had, if I would have known this was what I would have come to, I wish I never would have made it past a few weeks old, basically. He says in verses 13, 14, 15, Then I would have lied down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Further down in verse 17, there the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. Where is this there? The Hebrew conception of uh, the afterlife is not as robust or built out as we find in the New Testament. They believed in this place called Sheol or Sheol, 
It's the place of the underworld, and everyone just goes there when they die. There's not this kind of like heaven-hell distinction like we typically think of. And uh, it's a conscious place of existence. It's not this like, you know, lake of fire, Satan's poking people with a pitchfork kind of place. It's just this place of like gloom and darkness, but everyone's equal, everyone's resting, and you just kind of exist there, I guess. All right, so he's wishing, if I had just died at childbirth, then I would be there. And that would be better than the pain that I have to deal with right now. Further on, the next final segment here, verses 20 to 26, says, okay, I didn't get that. God didn't just blot out the day of my birth, and he didn't just allow me to die shortly after being born. So again, God, why is light given to him who's in misery? This is verse 20. In life to the bitter in soul. And all throughout these sections, these verses, he's basically saying, why do you let people keep living who just want to die? I'm ready to go. This pain isn't worth it. How come you continue to sustain me when all I want is death? I want to rest. I am not, as he says in verse 26, the final words here, I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest. That's Job's essential problem. In his very soul, he is so tormented with his loss that he sustained in his suffering that he just wishes God would take him out. One quick note here, I want to point out this is not suicide. Job's actually already been offered this in chapter 2. His wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? And he, he refused to do that. He refuses to take his life into his own hands. He says, should we not receive both good and evil from the hand of the Lord? And so though Job is protesting and pleading with God to let him die, he's not willing to take his life into his own hands. He still leaves his life in the hands of God. He says, even, even if this is what's been decreed for me, I'm not going to step out of bounds as a creature and end my life. That's solely a role and right of the creator. The bottom line is this. Job is meditating that the gift of life that I've been giving is just not worth the agony and the suffering that I'm experiencing right now, both physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. He's in a really rough place. And no doubt some of us in this room have been in a similar place. Many of us will end up in this place at some point or another. If you get married, if you have kids, right? the more you love, the more you can get hurt. That's not to say don't get married, don't have kids, don't have relationships, don't step out there. You should. You should experience those things. But the more you become closer with somebody, the more the pain of that loss when you lose them, right? And so all of us are very likely to end up in a pit like Job at some point or another. So there's something for all of us here today. There's some parallel texts. I think I have this on the screen. Sweet. And then you can don't go to any other slides because I changed things. Sorry. Uh, there's some parallel texts throughout the Old Testament with like the exact same language. In Jeremiah 20, Jeremiah was a prophet sent to the nation of Israel to let them know like, hey, God's judgment is coming on you. Babylon's coming. They're going to destroy you and take you into, into slavery because you've, you've disobeyed. You've broken the covenant with God. And everybody hates Jeremiah because he just always brings bad news. No one's his friend. The king beats him up and throws him in a pit. And he says almost word for word exactly what Job says here in Jeremiah 20. He basically says, God, why won't you just take me out? Why did I have to live? My life isn't worth living anymore. Or Elijah, the prophet Elijah, one of the most famous prophets in the Old Testament. You'll find stories about him in 1 Kings. He's the guy who called down fire on the prophets of Baal and whatnot, really stood up to, uh, to the Baal worship in the northern kingdom. 
That dude's chased all over the countryside. He's like hiding in caves for his very life. God has to send like ravens to feed him in the wilderness. And he, he calls the same thing. He like fulfills the mission God gave him, realizes like everybody hates him. And he's just like, God, leave me alone to go die. I'm, I'm done. I don't have any friends anymore. I'm totally cut off from my society. Psalm 44 is a psalm of the sons of Korah written for the entire nation of Israel, which is a lament of like, God, we're being crushed. We're being destroyed. We're surrounded by our enemies. They're mocking us. Where are you? Where have you gone? So like the whole nation in this, this pit of despair. And then Psalm 102 is literally just titled, A Psalm for Those Who Are Afflicted. It's like a lament that anyone who's feeling anywhere close to where Job's at can recite this psalm as a lament. And the first 11 verses are all the same kind of thing. of Like, God, where are you? Why is this happening to me? What is going on? I feel like I'm being crushed. I'm being pierced by your arrows. You're afflicting me with things that I can't bear up under. When C.S. Lewis was losing his wife, uh, he, he married later on life, and then his wife ended up dying slowly of cancer. While she was losing him, he, re- he remarked about this as his like, psychological state in the midst of this so- sorrow that he carried, carried. He said, it's not that I'm in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, oh, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. And see, all these psalms, what we just read about Job here, is the temptation all of us have. Uh, Pastor Josh mentioned last week that this question of good and evil, how can a good God exist in a world where there's so much evil and suffering, it can be this kind of like academic uh, discussion. That's important. It's important for the sake of apologetics. And pretty much every worldview has to reckon with this. Uh, But Job is not asking that question, like, does God exist? Right? He's going, no, like, I believe God exists, but is he wicked? Is God evil? Like, where did this come from? is the question Job is asking. It's far more personal, relational, regarding to the God whom he loved and worshipped all of his life. That's the question that we will likely ask or have asked when we are tormented. We may abandon the faith. We may give up and say, well, there's no way there could be a God. I personally know like that's, I feel like intellectually not even an option for me, but it, it would be tempting to start thinking that God's calling God's character into question. If you, were, if you had this much suffering visited on you, your whole family wiped out. People have experienced tremendous suffering collectively as human beings. Think about nations that are enduring decades of famine or horrible shortages of like medical supplies. Think of the malaria crisis in Africa. Think of civil wars like in Syria, the war in Ukraine, where an entire society goes through tremendous levels of suffering and pain like this. I think we'd all be tempted to start questioning is God really like what the Bible says he is? Because it's hard to believe it right now. Well, to keep us like Lewis from believing false things about God, from believing that God is cruel, distant, or even against us, that he's afflicting us out of some sort of perverted desire to just see humans suffer, I want to introduce you to one more man of sorrows. You can probably guess who that's going to be. And so here I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles uh, in just a minute. You don't have to move yet. But um, we're going to move now to look at Jesus' own life as an example, where there's a lot of parallels between Job 3 and what Jesus goes through. And I hope that that will convince us. I'm not going to answer the question today of like, why do bad things happen to good people? Or why am I suffering? 
What was the purpose in it? We have still got a lot to go in the book of Job, and that's not really the question this text is addressing. So if you came here for that answer, you'll have to come back. I'm not going to answer that today, but I will give us something to hold us through this kind of t- trial and suffering. So I want you to imagine Jesus with me, his last just 24 hours of his life. Okay? It begins at the Last Supper with his 12 disciples, and one of those, Judas, betrays him, leaves and betrays him for 30 pieces of silver, and he knows what's going on. And that's something unique to Jesus' suffering too. So Job had no idea this was coming. Jesus knew exactly what he was heading into, and he willingly submitted to it. So Job, or sorry, Judas betrays him. Then they go, after they leave the meal, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is on his face, weeping and pleading with the Father, Lord, if there's any way that this can pass for me, please take this cup from me. Yet not your will be done, but mine. In fact, he's under so much duress, so much anxiety, that he starts sweating drops of blood. Now, I used to think this was like some sort of weird supernatural thing or some sort of symbolic thing. It was like actually a, a medical condition called hematohydrosis. The National Library of Medicine says it may occur in individuals suffering from extreme levels of stress. Around your sweat glands, there are multiple blood vessels in a net-like form, which constrict under pressure of great stress. Then as the anxiety passes, the blood vessels dilate to the point of rupture and blood goes into the sweat glands. As the sweat glands produce a lot of sweat, they push the blood to the surface, which comes out as droplets of blood mixed with sweat. So just think about the kind of psychological stress, suffering that Jesus has already entered into well before the crucifixion. It's nighttime. The the dawn hasn't even risen. He's already so suffering psychologically in his soul that he's bleeding drops of blood. Then the guards show up, and the rest of his 11 friends abandon him and run to the four winds, run into the night. Then he's falsely accused about and lied in a public show show trial. He's whipped and then beaten to within an inch of his life. He's rejected by the very people he came to save who cry out, We have no king but Caesar. His blood be on our hands and our children. Crucify him. Crucify him. And then he's paraded through town as a trophy of Roman imperial domination, stripped naked, nailed to a tree with iron spikes as the onlookers laugh at him. And then the torturers cast lots to see who gets to take his clothes home as a souvenir. That, like Job, is a tremendous amount of suffering, relationally, physically, in your soul, spiritually, packed into 24 hours, just like Job's sessions were. And at the end of his rope, at his last moments, what does Jesus say? According to Matthew 27, 46, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not stoicism. This is not this cold-faced, yep, this is what I came to do. I'm here accomplishing my mission. I'm going to rise again in three days. No, Jesus has really entered into tremendous suffering. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you know, he is quoting from Psalm 22, actually. That's what I want you to turn to now, Psalm 22. I want you to see this for yourself. The Psalms will be to the right of Job, but not by a lot. In fact, it's the very next, the very next uh, book in the Bible, so it should be pretty easy to find. Turn into Psalm 22, if you will. This is a Psalm of David. Jesus quotes it here now. He quotes the first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Evoking all of the imagery and details of this Psalm. And as we read it, you're going to see it has some crazy accurate detailed depictions. 
of what sure seems like Jesus' crucifixion. In fact, it's really hard to imagine how this could even be about David. It seems so clearly about Christ's final moments. So as we read this, I just want you to see this as a window into our Messiah's soul as he suffered on the cross for you and me. Please read Psalm 22 with me here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. If you've ever said, God, where are you? God, why have you forsaken me? You're in good company. You're in the company of Job and Jeremiah and Elijah and David and Jesus Christ himself. In our sorrow, we often ask that question, why? Why? What's going on? Jesus knew the purpose of his suffering. We often won't get to know. And I'm not here to explain that to you. What I'm here to do is point you to the advantage you have that Job did not. You have one great advantage in your suffering if you're in Christ and that Job did not. Remember, Job doesn't know what happened in chapters 1 and 2 between God and Satan. Job doesn't know what's going on in the courtroom of God, in the throne room of God. Job has no idea who's at the controls. He's like, who's, who's taking over the wheel here? This is crazy. But you and I can know exactly what's going on in the throne room of God in the midst of our suffering. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says, We have a great high priest who's been tempted or tested just as we have, yet without sin. So therefore, draw near to the throne of grace in your time of need, the throne of mercy, so that you may find grace in your time of need. You have a great high priest who has went before you. He has endured suffering before you. He entered into human existence, took on full human body and human nature, and suffered all the pain of this world that's common to all of us, and some very, very unique suffering in his last 24 hours of his passion. He's gone before you. He's not asking you to do anything that he hasn't done. And the book of Hebrews is all about endurance in the midst of suffering, how to persevere, how to hold on, how to keep running the race, how to not give up even when things get this hard. James himself, we just read through the book of James, says multiple times that we need endurance, and he points to Job as our example. Well, the book of Hebrews is filled with this courtroom imagery. It pulls back the curtain, so to speak. Say, this is what's going on in the throne room. 
when you feel like you're being crushed, when you feel like God's arrows are in you, when you're crying out, God, why have you forsaken me? Hebrews actually pulls back the curtain on the throne room of God to show what's going on. I'm going to read to you Hebrews, a section from Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4. If you want to turn there, you can. Or you can just listen. They're not very long. This is what's going on in the throne room of God. Listen to Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He's endured all the same suffering that we have. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted or tested. That's who you have in the throne room. You never have to judge or guess God's goodness towards you, his will towards you. You have a great high priest in the throne room interceding for you. You don't necessarily get the answer of why. Why has he allowed this to happen? But you can cling to this truth no matter what in the midst of it. If you look just at Hebrews 4, two chapters later, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 sums it up even better. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted or tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isaiah 53 calls Christ a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and has just an incredible, again, just like Psalm 22, prophetic, detailed depiction of Christ's suffering on behalf of sinners, the Lamb of God slain. Your high priest entered into suffering just like you have, are, or will go through and he can sympathize with you. We ought not comfort one another by saying, I know how you're feeling, but Christ really can say that to you. He really can say, I know what you're going through. He's representing you to the Father, interceding for you. When our breath is wind and our throat is choked with sobs, he is right there at the throne praying for us. Psalm 56.8 says that he captures every one of our tears in his bottle and writes our sorrows in his book, we do not have to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know his will and spirit towards us. We know who is in the throne room of God representing us for him. We may never get the purpose behind the suffering that we had to go through. Right? We may never find out why. You might even ask God to end your life. It's okay to pray that way, actually. The Apostle Paul does this when he's imprisoned. He's experiencing serious afflictions. He says, I know it's better to go to be with the Lord. But he, he leaves his life in God's hands. So you may even desire that God would end your life. And that's okay. I understand that. Job understands that. But you never have to doubt what's going on in the throne room of God. I'm going to read some lyrics from a most beautiful hymn by Charles Wesley. <clears throat> if the musicians want to come up. Are we doing the Lord's Supper next? Yeah, if the musicians want to come up and prepare for the last song. This is such a beautiful, beautiful song. It has a beautiful tune. It's not the one we're going to sing. 
but I want you to picture Christ in the throne room of God interceding for you if you've repented, believed, and trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead, his blood atoned for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransom sinner die. The Father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his Son. The Spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Please stand and sing and worship our great high priest who has gone before us into the heavenly places and now lives to make intercession for us. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.